Let us pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word that you would speak. You've spoken in the reading. Now would you speak in the preaching? Would your spirit bring clarity to our hearts? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Church buildings talk. Did you know that? And I I don't mean in the sense of like when you go to lock them up at night. No, they absolutely talk then. They make the weirdest noises out of any building I've ever been in. Um, If you want, I can tell you stories later of the weird noises I've heard in this building by by myself having doors open and doors shut. The shutting doesn't bother me as much as the opening. But the other things, that's not what I mean. That's totally off topic. Church buildings talk because they tell you a lot about what the people who built it value. You get to see their priorities. You get to see what's important to them when they build the building. Uh, If you could see our lovely drawings and I could use them as an illustration, you could see really uh, what we value and what we're going to build in our next one. It is effectively a box with bathrooms. No, why? I mean, I'm being a little bit silly, but why why is that? I mean, it's a really clever box with bathrooms, but why? Well, because we value the people of God and we value being a a good steward with the money that we have. We don't feel like borrowing $87 million to put in the solid gold urinals in there. And so we built a building where we could afford it and you could sit in it. That's the design. It's amazing, though, the other things that church buildings say. There's one, it's a chapel, it's not a church building, but a sanctuary inside the PCA uh, where the, the pulpit, it's funny, it's, it's not that much further kind of away than what I am from you now, except the pulpit is about 17 feet high. That pulpit says something, doesn't it? I mean, it says a lot when I'm way up there, you know. A little different here where I have to choose which hand I give the benediction in so I don't pat Gloria's cheek while I'm giving the benediction (laughs) where the people are so close. It gives a different feeling. Buildings talk. They tell you something. They tell you uh, what the, the people who designed it find important. Is function more important than beauty? Is beauty more important than function. Are they both equally important? Are neither of them important? I've been in buildings where neither of them are important. It's an aspect that uh, an architect would think about, but not many others would think about how buildings communicate truth. They, they tell us about the people who design them. It's intriguing. That's the function that we get into in chapters 25 and following in the book of Exodus. And you have to kind of think back a little bit to see the significance of this. God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and they don't know that much about him. I mean, remember when Moses is going down, you're like, "Uh, what name am I supposed to use? I'm not even sure which common name I'm supposed to refer to. Could you at least help me out with that? And so God takes them out into the desert and begins the process of self-revelation, of telling them who he is. You may not remember, that's a hard thing to do for most humans, to try to figure out how to explain well who we are. For those of you that maybe 
couple years removed from this, you could go back and think about those first dates that you went on with your current spouse. For those that that's very fresh, think about that and be excited. Of the process of, of trying to explain who you are to another person. It's intriguing what God does. He's so wise. He takes them out into the desert and he gives them the Ten Commandments and architectural plans. And you think out of all the things that you could do, God, uh, you give them Ten Commandments and you give them architectural plans. And it's because in both of these things, he's showing God's people who he is. But you think about that when we're reading chapter 25 to go, this is an explanation of God telling his people so much about how he is going to interact with them. We're going to look at kind of the four pieces as they're divided up in the text, the four chunks, the first kind of being the verses one through nine. Here the Lord says to Moses, look, tell the people, uh, they're going to build me a, a house, they're going to build me a, a tent, uh, and uh, they're going to give it to it. I'm going to take up a contribution. It's not going to be mandatory. I'm not going to arm twist them. Now, could he have done that? Yes, he's God. Further, he could have done that because everything they own, he just had the Egyptians give to them. Remember, they didn't own anything prior to that. All of the stuff that's in their possession has been in their possession for you know, less than 10 weeks uh, since God had the Egyptians give it to them. But instead, God says, take a, a collection from whoever wishes and have them give from this list. And it's a cool list. It's fun. Gold, silver, and bronze. Okay, we know what those are. The next part, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine, linen, goats. That doesn't make quite as much sense to us. What it is is a list of um, fabrics that are dyed from rare to le- from increasingly rare to l- less rare. Uh, the blue was from a seashell that was only found in a couple of places in the Mediterranean. Uh, the, the scarlet is actually from smashed worms, a very uh, special type of worm. The fine twined linen is a unique term. It's actually Egyptian. It's not even Hebrew. It's talking about a special type of linen that they could only have gotten from Egypt. Goat's hair. And then it goes into the list of other things that need to be given, and it's really cool. I love the ESV is trying to help you out here, so it makes a little bit more sense, uh, but it's not entirely accurate. Tanned rams skins and goat skins, um, it has the footnote there. The literal is sea cows. It's the tanned hides of sea cows, which maybe dolphins, maybe manatees, we don't know. Uh, it's weird to think about that the entire tabernacle was covered with probably, I'm going to guess, manatee skin. And it's not... Um, what you would normally think of. Acacia wood, a wood that's very common, and then all of the spices that could be given. And it's intriguing how much this communicates by God to his people to think about what he's telling them, even in this conversation. He's showcasing who he is. Here is the God who single-handedly by himself just had the sea open up and eat the most powerful army on the planet. This is the God who has been appearing to these people in a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. Not like, you know, some little spindly, you know, smokestack. We're talking gigantic tornado, large enough that the army, enemy armies would not advance because they were too afraid of it. 
This is the God who has provided water from a rock. And again, not to think of just like turning on a faucet here, which is, would be enough for us all to get water, but water from a rock for an, enough for millions of people to drink. This is not like a little bit of water. It's a spontaneous lake existing in the middle of the desert and fresh water at that. And here, when it comes time to explain what his relationship with his people is, he communicates to them from the very beginning, it's, it's to be a relationship of participation. I've already gave it away even by using the word relationship. That it's an, an interaction, it's not simply a one-sided conversation. This is not a God who is just speaking to his people and saying, now go, go, go act. And tells them and says, now go away. And tells them and then now go away. We all had one of those teachers at some point in our educational career, didn't we? The teacher that if you had to have a question, oh man, pity on you. Where you go and ask and the teacher's like, stop talking to me, this thing, now go away. That's not what God is communicating to them, is it? He's communicating to them that, look, you're my people. I've already saved you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now the goal is not to be like some college lecturer that has no idea who you are and wouldn't recognize you if they ran into you in the mall. This is a God who's designing a relationship with his people where they are to participate where he gives them and they give back and he gives them and they give back and it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's a relationship. You see, this is the foundation for even our order of worship. You may not have realized it is always built more or less the same way where it's a conversation between God and man. God speaks to us in his word in the call to worship. We respond in song and in prayer. You realize hymns are just sung prayers. That's all they are. We respond song and prayer. He responds back with the scripture, the statement of need. We respond back with confession. It's a relationship. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. God is calling us to participate. Not in our salvation. That's already accomplished at this point in the text. Instead, calling us to participate in that holy relationship. And it seems a bit weird maybe to make the point of application, but I do wonder sometimes how often we get spiritually weak or weary because we've forgotten that aspect That it's a conversation, it's a relationship, it's two-sided. We've forgotten either that the Lord is calling us to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling the salvation that he has provided, or we forget to listen to what he's already said. We are creatures that are prone to extremes and we're prone to sticking our fingers in our ears to forget one aspect of any sort of conversation. I suspect as being that we are most Americans and the vast majority of Americans, we spend all of our time listening, simply trying to formulate what we're going to say next. I suspect that it really showcases that we don't listen to God that often. We don't actually listen to his word 
We don't read it. We don't stew on it. We don't meditate on it. This relationship, though, is, I guess, I mean, I think for the, the ancient Jew at this point would have been terrifying. I mean, we have Jesus and we have New Testament Christianity and we've in so many ways kind of neutered our terror of God. For them, it would have been an absolutely terrifying thing to think of the God of the universe saying, hey, uh, it's time for you to make donations so we can build a tent for me to stay in among you. I'm going to live with you in a tent. Nope, I don't think so. Uh, Because at this point, remember when they're hearing this, he's up on top of the mountain. God's glory is on top of the mountain. And the mountain is shaking and it's terrifying so much so that even when the Lord invites people to start coming onto the mountain, they're like, no, I I don't think so. I don't want to be in your presence. It's too scary. And then you have this great and mighty, scary God saying, come, look, we'll be in conversation together. We'll be in relationship. I'll listen to you. I'll involve you. I will let you participate in relationship with me. Well, that would be scary enough. And so I think the next part is a good transition. What he, God infinitely wise, then begins to explain. He tells them about the Ark of the Covenant. Which again, is significant because it is the physical kind of location that would most clearly be connected to the presence of God. Even more so than the Holy of Holies, it is the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. It was a box made of acacia wood. It was about four foot by two and a half foot by two and a half foot. Big box covered with gold everywhere. Heavy box having rings put on the bottom of it so that it would never touch the ground. Holy box with poles in it covered in gold so that you could then carry it, which would have been really heavy. (laughs) It would have been impressive. A box entirely encased in gold to think about, again, taking it out into the ancient Near Eastern sun. Can you imagine what that would have looked like when they were carrying it across the desert? It would have looked like it was a box on fire. Which is intriguing because that's exactly what they're told to decorate it with on the sides. They're told to put two cherubim, one on each side, which again, if you remember Ezekiel 1, chapters 1, chapter 10, where they're described, they are described as creatures of fire and creatures of wings and creatures of terror. It's why every time they show up in the Bible, the humans are like, I'm out of here. And the angels are like, don't be afraid. I'm not going to nuke you right now. And these creatures on the end are designed to be, again, they're these creatures of fire, but they are designed to to highlight this spot in the middle. A seat designed for God. And I love that God even describes it himself. He terms it the mercy seat. The place in the very center where God dwells. And again, what does that communicate to his people? It's not the judgment seat. Now, do we have that described in Scripture? Yeah, that that happens on the last day. The throne of judgment, it exists. But here, interestingly, the way that God even portrays it to his people is it is this thing of beauty, this thing of delight, this place of just absolute sparkling glory. And it is the location of mercy.
I mean, what a what a message that conveys to his people. What it tells them about who God is and that the very center place of where he dwells is a place of mercy. Again, I love just to kind of think about the kind of intellectual, the emotional development of Israel at this point. Think about what mercy would have felt like for them. They've been slaves. Terrible, terrible slavery. The kind of slavery where their population starts to increase so their masters are like, eh, just work them harder. They'll die. It'll slow the rate of growth. That's the type of slavery they came from. The type of slavery where, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and take a guess that the Egyptians were probably not very forgiving when they made mistakes. It wasn't like the Egyptian masters were like, oh, well, you tried hard. I know that block that you've been working on for four weeks to try to cut perfectly. You tried hard, but when you split it, it's okay. You can make another. I I bet that's probably not the case. No, instead, they've come from a culture where everything was punished and their life was hanging in the balance because of this judgment. And now they interact with this holy, terrifying God. And he describes himself to them as the God of mercy. The God who welcomes them into his presence. The God who is communicating to them his glory and his majesty and his wonder. And that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And funny enough, I think this is probably an area where uh, many of uh, the believing, at least the Christian, so to speak, uh, Jews in this area, probably understood this a lot better than we do. And I suspect part of that is because they actually started as being afraid of God. You know, we talked about this in Proverbs, how it begins in the, the very theme of Proverbs is the, f- the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I, I, I tend to think that we probably don't, we're not really afraid of God at all. I mean, I know that is certainly the, the inner leaning of my own heart and the way my flesh tries to corrupt my theology, but to think of God as just being just like me, only a bit smarter, a bit nicer, and a bit better, but only a bit. And I, I would imagine it probably the mercy seat would have felt really, really good to cling to in concept when you have the terrifying mountain right in front of you. I again wonder perhaps if we don't marvel at God's mercy simply because we don't ever think about his judgment. We don't think ever about the fact that he does get angry over sin and because I am a sinner, he never really gets angry over me. Well, I don't really have anything to be excited about. His mercy doesn't mean much because it didn't cost much, because I haven't done much, because God's not big enough to care. No, for Israel, though, that would have been a very different thing to know this terrifying God is welcoming them into his presence. And as scary as that is, he's giving them the very foundational definition of being in his presence as one of mercy. And you can go to other parts of the Bible and think about interacting with royalty in the ancient Near East. It was a really safe thing, wasn't it? 
to wander into the presence of a king. You knew you're in good place when you're in the king's presence, right? No. Remember Esther? Remember that story? Of, oh, no, I'm, I'm not sure he's not going to kill me on the spot. And we actually have track record that guy kind of did often. The king didn't like it, he could kill you. Yet here, this king is telling his people, relationship of mercy. It's intriguing, too. It doesn't just stop there. What he's telling them about his relationship is, again, the, the architecture speaks so much in this place, and in a way that we would just, it just would blow your mind if you had been the original listening audience. He tells them of the Ark of the Covenant where he will dwell, where his testimony, the Ten Commandments, other things will be kept, his very place of presence. And then he kind of works out from here from most holy to kind of increasingly less so. The next thing that he goes to describe would have been genuinely shocking. I mean, you would have been like, what, Moses? Did you really say a table? Out of all the things, a table? Why on earth would you build a table for a tent? You know, all the things you don't need, a a tent, you need a table. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits, cubit breadth, cubit and a half in height, overlay it in gold with a gold molding around it. It's going to have a gold rim. And just like the others, uh, just like the Ark of the Covenant, it will have four rings for poles to carry it. Interestingly, those poles don't stay in it, though. They get taken out and stored away later. Again, not quite as holy as the Ark of the Covenant, though certainly holy. And you think about why why would you need a, a table covered in gold? Well, tells us it's going to be the table where the bread of the presence is going to be kept. And again, hinting at already, this is a God who will eat with his people. Who will fellowship with his people. And sometimes, again, it's, it's easy to forget the significance of sharing food together. You know, why is it that when you, you get to know someone, it's always like, let's go out to lunch, let's grab a meal. Let's go out and have a conversation. Let's get a cup of coffee. Let's share nourishment together. Let's be persons together. And hear God explaining that in the very architecture of his building will be built into it something to teach his people that he will fellowship with them. He'll eat with them. He'll dwell with them. And then lastly, architecturally, the lampstand. I love how it explicitly says, build it specifically according to the patterns, and the pattern does not give us enough detail to build. I love that. The Lord's saying, no, you really do need my spirit to do this. But it is a... Uh, lampstand that is basically almond blossoms. It's got uh, seven uh, pieces to it. You know more or less what it looks like. It would have been uh, inordinately bright for that time as it would have had gold and the light would have been reflecting off of the gold. Uh, You catch it at the end. The lampstand and all of the utensils. So uh, the utensils would have been important. The way that their lamps work a little bit different than our oil lamps today even would have been like a bowl with a pinch on the end where it would have kind of gone up to a spout and the wick, you would just lay it in there. 
And so the wick would stick out the end and the oil from the pool here would get sucked up the wick and it would burn on the very end. And the way that you put it out was by taking tongs and just pulling the wick out of the oil. And you could set it into a pot off to the side. So they have tongs for pulling the wick out and a tray for the uh, wicks to go into and such. And all told, it weighs 75 pounds. It's a lot of gold. It's pretty impressive. But again, hinting at that the Lord is the Lord of light and that he wants his place of worship to be characterized by this brilliance. This is not a lampstand, again, in that era that would have been known for being dim. Now, for us today, it probably would have slightly different impact as we have fluorescent and LED lights everywhere. For us to think about light in the darkness is kind of a silly thing because we can't get away from the light. I mean, it is insane. I remember in seminary, I lived at a place off South Boulevard uh, where at night you could walk out with the newspaper and at three in the morning read the newspaper with no lights on because it was so bright. Uh, We had a snowstorm that knocked out the power to the entire western half of Charlotte. And that was the first time it was disturbing because it was so dark. That's the exact opposite of the culture which they live in. It's pitch black constantly. When it got dark, it got real dark very rapidly. And here the Lord in his tent has built and designed for it this magnificent lampstand. It would have been the brightest, most lovely thing they had ever seen that was man-made. They would have literally never seen anything this bright in their entire life. And then again, to think about this is a tent that on the inside, outside covered with dolphin skin or something, who knows, but on the inside, everything more or less is gold. And to think about the brightest lamp you've ever seen shining in a room more or less made of solid gold, and it would have been magnificent. It would have bright and shiny, overwhelming and glorious. And again, the Lord teaching his people about his glory. I love even more, though, about this, how all four of these things are preparations, even in the architecture of the tabernacle, they are preparations to prepare God's people for the arrival of Jesus. All four of them in the very way that God designed the tabernacle itself would be preparing God's people for the arrival of Christ. Think about it. From the very beginning, he says, look, I'm ready for you to to be participants in this uh, relationship together. You give, I'll use it to build a tabernacle where I'm going to dwell. Tabernacle is just the fancy word for tent. That's all it is. Your people are going to give, and it's going to be part of what God uses to bring his presence into the people of God and dwell in relationship with them. It's the same idea that John picks up in chapter 1. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the same word. It's the same concept as that God lives in and among his people. And to think that that's what makes Jesus so spectacular is he's actually not just taking a tent like God's people, but he's actually taking their flesh. One step further, he's becoming one of them. Now, the very location where God resides inside this holy tent is characterized most clearly as the mercy seat. 
Man, what a portrait of the Lord Christ. How is it that sin would be taken care of? Well, Israel's going to spend about 1,500 years experimenting with bulls and goats and all kinds of other animals, all in preparation to say, look, if you want that mercy seat, you've got to have a better sacrifice than a bull or a goat or anything of the sort. You have to have that one perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. The one who the once offering of himself would accomplish that full satisfaction of sin. The one who would be described as the yes and amen of all of God's promises. You ever think about, I mean, we use that phrase in kind of church land all the time, but what that means that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. It means that they are both accomplished and guaranteed. So you can say that God's mercy is guaranteed for his people because of the work of Christ. And again, I wonder, I just wonder, how would our lives be different if we actually emotionally believed that to be true? If we actually emotionally believed that God no longer has wrath stored up for me. You know, I suspect most of us, in some sense, probably think in the back of our head that when I'm good, God loves me, and when I'm bad, he's, he, he hates me. Now, we would never say it that way in public, and certainly never say it to the pastor. <laughs> but it's interesting how much that is just legalism. It's just performance anxiety packaged in spiritual language instead of understanding that in the very geography of the tabernacle itself was an object lesson. That God is the one who is the one, he is the one accomplishing mercy for his people. And that would be accomplished in Christ and nothing can change that. And I love that how you walk out from the mercy seat, the, the images that you would have seen a table filled with bread where God would eat with his people. That's amazing how here it's solid or I mean it's, it's uh, encased in gold. Little would they know that 1,500 years later or so, they'd have a poor carpenter sitting at the table with them, and it wouldn't be a fancy table. It'd be the same kind of bread, strangely enough. The Lord Jesus would be breaking bread with them, sharing that meal in foreshadowing of even the greater meal to come and the life to come. Lastly, even with the lampstand, it's an image that Zechariah is certainly going to pick up, but that uh, Jesus himself would pick up when he's going to say things like, I am the light of the world. He's taking Old Testament language in capturing that God's presence is marked with light. So when he says something like, I am the light of the world, it's not just some profound statement made by some slightly off bizarre teacher. What he's doing is referencing in the language of Judaism all the way back to the Old Testament to say, look, what you have always known about your God, that he is the God of light. Oh, yeah, by the way, I am that light. Everything you have experienced as a Jew, he's telling them, has been pointing to me all along. We're going to see it in 26, 27, 28, continuing through all of the tabernacle is all designed to point to the Lord Christ. Well, so what? 
I mean, it's neat and all. There's neat things in Exodus 25. That's cool. Thanks, Pastor Michael, for being so excited about a weird passage of Scripture I haven't read in five years and won't read again for another five. Well, no, it's important because what it teaches us is it teaches us how to be in God's presence. And that's extremely important because of what's taking place this evening. As we have VBS in this church, you realize VBS isn't simply a time to teach children whatever we want. It's certainly not a time to teach them how to make their lives better. It is largely and primarily about teaching children how to exist in the presence of God. And we teach them that when they're three years old and when they're four years old and when they're five years old and when they're 33 years old and 43 years old and 93 years old. We teach ourselves that always. Because while we may have eight or nine decades in this life here, that's what the rest of eternity is. And it's a weird way to think about VBS is preparation. It's, it's instruction in the life to come. It's certainly a stranger way to think about architecture. But it's the way that God thinks about architecture here. That he's instructing his people and who Christ is and what Christ will accomplish. And he's instructing them in what the life to come will be like. What it will mean to be in relationship with God. I would encourage you to be reminded to think about... the. This is the twofold mission of this church. We talk about it all the time, but to think about it. The gathering and the perfecting of the saints. It's that teaching others how to be ready for the life to come, to be in that relationship with God, but at the same time, me and myself, and it's the Lord working in me, to be ready for when I'm called home. May it be that we, both in our practice and even in our architecture, but certainly in our hearts, capture this idea of living in relationship with God through the work of the Lord Jesus. And may it be that we glorify God and enjoy Him forever and this evening teach children to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank you that it challenges us. Thank you that there are hard passages and easy ones. And thank you that all of the Bible applies to everybody. We ask that you would, even as we go from this place, apply it to our hearts. That we might grow in love and obedience for Christ's sake. Amen.